Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, Cameron and I will talk about disciplines for a distracted age. We'll discuss the way our capacity to pay attention is shrinking as our access to information increases, and how something as simple as reading a poem can make a difference. We'll also look at how the poetry of scripture in particular can be of value when it comes to increasing your ability to attend to Christ. We're living in an age of distraction, a time when the ancient biblical concept of Sabbath rest is appealing, not from any legalistic consideration, but as a much-needed interval for renewal and reflection in the midst of all the noise. The problem is, we try to rest by doing nothing, by maintaining empty space, or in this case, time. And nature abhors a vacuum. Something is always waiting at the margins to come in and fill your carefully curated space. So the question isn't so much what not to do, but what to do instead. We rest from our busyness by resting into something else. For Christians, that something else is the presence of God found in worship. In other words, To rest from distraction, you fill your thoughts with beauty. The fact is, many people don't feel the absence of worship. Well, they do, but they don't know how to name it. But what they can name is the absence of rest, the absence of peace. They can relate to the sense that their minds are racing, that their attention span is shrinking, that their days are consumed by busyness that, in the end, amounts to nothing. The question is, how do you regain your ability to pay attention? How do you find a place of mental and spiritual rest? These are the questions swirling at the heart of this episode of The Commentary. Hopefully, our conversation will at least help you put a finger on what it is that you are trying to recapture. One of Cameron's projects that we've talked about before in the commentary is the Venora Project, which is this unusual collaboration between Cameron and Zach, a poet and a visual artist. We mentioned if you're in Sioux Falls downtown, you can go into Cafea and see their exhibition where Cameron's poetry and Zach's paintings are on the walls side by side, or, or I guess it's above and below, not yep. side by side. And you can spend a little time with that, which I would encourage you to do because the exhibition is only going to be there for a little bit longer, right? That's right. We don't have a definite end date, but it will likely be before the end of the year. So another month or two at most. Sure. And it's it's a really great show to actually go in and spend some time with because of the way that the poetry 
flows from the visual art and those sort of interconnections. So you don't want to just uh, read the work. You want to read the work, look at the art and kind of think about uh, where it leads you. Well, one of the things that Cameron has been doing as the Venora Project has continued is, is writing uh, essays that accompany these projects. And his most recent essay is called Training Our Attention, Why We All Need Poetry Now. When I read this, I immediately thought, well, we've got to talk about this <laughs> on the commentary. And so in the show notes, I will include a link to the essay. If you follow that link, you can read the essay that we're about to talk about, or you can actually listen to a recording of Cameron reading it to you in case your attention span is not so <laughs> so good. It only takes 11 minutes for yeah. him to read through it. So no, the quality is not as fine as this here podcast. Oh, no, no, no. I, I think the quality is fantastic. <laughs> and certainly the quality of thought is excellent. And uh, so, yeah, what, what I want to do is basically reverse the, the roles here a little bit. Mm. And I'm going to probe Cameron with some questions because I think that Number one, this is a great essay and represents some, some really good insight into uh, the problem that we face with attention and also a good way of solving it. But secondly, because I think that the argument that Cameron makes about poetry is one that we could easily extend to scripture, especially the poetry in scripture. So... Uh, before we we jump to the conclusions, though, let, let's talk a little bit about just the substance. So you talk about the problem of attention and and our shortening attention spans. Um, could you just kind of give us a sense of of how you see that problem and 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 how we suffer from it? Yeah. So I think the the way I started was looking around and just uh, it's no surprise to me that uh, most people don't read poetry, you know, so I'm, I'm someone who does read a lot of poetry and I happen to write it too, but it, I know that a lot of other people don't. So that was my starting point And I was, I've just been thinking, how can I encourage or help others to enjoy this thing that I enjoy so much? And so of course I'm going through the reasons. What are the reasons why someone might read poetry today, especially because I know that I've got a lot of other things to read. And it occurred to me that one of the virtues I think of poetry in particular is that it helps us focus our attention. So you asked though about the attention part. I also happen to be a copywriter right now. So um, that is a strange combination. I, I realize I, I work writing ads to try to get people's attention during the day. And then I come home and I write poems which sometimes feel in direct opposition to the kind of writing that I'm doing during the day. So that's one of the things I picked up on the essay that, that there, there is a, a tension, I guess, because as a copywriter, you're not just writing uh, to get people's attention, but you're writing with a set of assumptions about people mm -hmm. that change the way you write. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's things that would be taught as good writing that as a copywriter, you cannot afford to do, that you're actually encouraged to do things that in the classroom we would say, that's poor writing. Yeah. Um, but as a copywriter, you're having to think, well, people have short attention spans, people like short sentences, things like that. Exactly. Yeah. So I've been feeling that tension in my life. And, you know, I, I think, though, that other people 
what I sense when I, I read what other people are posting online, I think people sense that their attention spans too are dwindling. So I didn't even try to make that case in, in the essay. Right. If you go ahead and read it, I just say, Hey, here's my assumption. You already think that your attention span is not what it once was, or right. at least it's not where you want it to be. And, you know, I use the word distraction and I, th- I think it's an interesting word because it implies a distraction implies that it's pulling you away from something you should be looking at something that you should be oriented towards, but a distraction is keeping you from that. And I just, I just think that we, we feel that way. So that was kind of my starting point. And then the rest of the essay was, here's one thing that you could do to improve your attention and to dive deeper, read a little bit more poetry. And so, I mean, obviously given your love of poetry, you're, you're not arguing, you know, poetry needs to justify its existence. And it turns out it can solve this problem of attention. It's just one of those helpful byproducts. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the case you make, I think is really compelling. Um, You have kind of three main points. The first one has to do with the brevity of poetry, which I think is great. Poems, you know, as a novelist, it pains me to say this, but, but poems do not require as much time yeah. to read beginning to end. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the paradoxical almost first point, because we're talking about people that have stunted attention spans. So you would think, well, I need to sit down and read a, a big, long Russian novel to right. work on my attention span. But what I find is that if you're not capable of doing that, you have to work and stages to get to that point where you you have a deeper attention. So yeah, most modern poetry in particular is pretty short. Right. So, so don't start with Beowulf or the right. Iliad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and it, so yeah, that's the invitation is you can look at this page and, and some poems don't even fill a whole page and, and you think, oh, this this shouldn't be that bad. And I think that's kind of the illusion, actually. I, I mean, in a sense, it is nice that you can finish a whole poem in a in a minute. But on the other hand, you could also spend many minutes going through that poem because of what's going on. Right, right. There's there's a compression of language that's that's really intense mm-hmm. and and oftentimes that's obvious to you on the first reading, but but there will be things kind of like with a painting where you you get the big picture when you glance at it, but when you go back and you study it, you see things or appreciate things you wouldn't. I think poetry is like that with revealing layers the more time you spend with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that actually gets to the, the second point, which is the, um, I said, the brevity, the shape, and the content. So maybe we'll jump to content out of order here. But I mean, the, the content of poetry can be the same content of a novel. A novel can talk about peace and beauty and friendship, whatever, and so can a poem. But the way a poem does it, like like you say, is concentrated so I think that's that's the thing about poetry that helps us concentrate or forces us to concentrate because it itself is concentrated so you if you're going to get it at all you have to slow down big time and take sips and I so I use the the metaphor of espresso in the in the essay I mentioned it and I actually have found that a really helpful metaphor when talking about poetry I used to work as a barista and I spent a lot of time in this third wave coffee shop learning how to calibrate an espresso machine. There's lots of 
twists and turns and a lot of math and science and art that all goes into this. And then it produces this tiny, concentrated, two-ounce drink. And you think, all that work for this this little thing. And it's kind of like this liquid poem, you know? And you t- your first sip of, a, of an espresso is usually way overbearing. Most people can't stand it their first try. And I find that's the case with poetry, too. But the idea is, if you give it time, if you slow down and smell it, maybe taste it again, maybe listen to somebody explain it to you, <laughs> that you can start to actually appreciate it for, for something unique. But it's it's not something, you don't want to drink espresso all day long. It's It's like too much. And I don't think... I think it would be strange if somebody only ever read poetry. It would be like, that's that's like drinking from a, a fire hydrant all day. Like, slow down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what's the most number of espressos you've ever consumed in a day? <laughs> oh, it's it's absurd because when calibrating the espresso machine, you have to taste every one. Okay. So is this is this right? Is this right? Is this, so, so we, Breeces, are sacrificing our sanity for the sake of our customers over there. Right. But, I mean, right. probably like... 10 ounces or so. Okay. I don't think I've told you this story, but, uh, and I definitely shouldn't tell it on the podcast, but here we go. Here we go. Um, I was in Paris in my early 20s with a tour group, Americans. We went into a restaurant that was in this sort of grotto, you know, underground. And at the end of the meal, they brought out an espresso for everyone. But it was a bunch of Americans in the early 90s. No one knew what it was, let alone would drink it. And yeah. so they all stared at these, you know, little... Uh, intimidating glasses and and they were untouched. And so as we were filing out, you had to, if you were like me on the far side of this long table, you had to pass by the whole table as you went. And I felt embarrassed for my countrymen Mm -hmm. and was imagining how the waiters would judge us when they saw that no one had touched their espresso. And so as I went down the table, I would just gulp them all down (laughs) so that, you know, leaving the empty glasses behind. So it would look like, you know, we hadn't rudely ignored the the coffee course yeah. and that night i had like heart palpitations and <laughs> went fully clothed and sat under the shower thinking i was gonna die <laughs> and at least i was in paris yeah so at least. <laughs> just anecdotal evidence that you don't want to drink espresso like too much espresso all at once and and i suppose the same is true for poetry as well but in moderation it can be really good. So right. that's the content. But let's go back to the the shape a little bit because there's another metaphor that you use in this that, that I really love. Uh, it's the metaphor of the freediver. Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about the freediver. Right. So I was reading recently that there are freedivers, so these are people who aren't using any gear or equipment, who can hold their breath for very, very long compared to most people and dive down and explore under the water. I think it was like 10 minutes or something on a single breath. And what I noted in the essay was that all of these divers, it's not just that they're naturally gifted necessarily, but that they have trained their lungs through these breathing techniques to be able to tolerate less oxygen. Their lungs just get more comfortable with it under the water. And eventually they're swimming all over the place underwater. It's like they're fish, but then they come back up and, and it's, it's this remarkable thing. So what I was trying to say through that, that example is, is I think reading poetry is, is similar where you have to, it is like taking a breath in a sense, when you open up a poem and you read it, 
you're diving under the surface, you're diving into the poem and you're, you're exploring it. And if you're just getting started, especially if your attention span is already suffering because of digital media or whatever, you're probably not going to be able to stand very much. And that's okay. I, you know, I don't think we should feel bad about that, but realizing that it's a process helps. So going a little bit deeper every time, spending a little more time before you reach for your cell phone or something like that is what I'm getting at. And I think eventually, at least in my experience, if you, if you take another dive, another dive, you hold a little bit more oxygen, eventually you feel like I can, I can swim around in this, this poem, whatever I'm reading. And it's, it's actually enjoyable and I'm discovering more things all the time. And, and the point I guess, isn't so much, um, like going deeper, like, like right. I want to get all the meaning out of this. It's, mm-hmm. it's staying down longer. Yes. Just being able to have that sustained attention and just notice things that, that you couldn't notice if it's just, you know, hold my breath, shoot down and get right back up. Yeah. Um, okay. So since I asked about espresso and what's the longest you've ever held your breath? <laughs> I can't really remember, but I, it's not too long. Maybe a few, a few minutes. I'll try later and I'll get back to you and let you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, I don't have any stories about how I stayed under for 10 minutes, yeah. you know, out of fear of being shamed by the French or something. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's definitely uh, one of those metaphors. I, th- I think that works because if you've ever tried to hold your breath, you know how hard it is and you don't, um, you don't fault yourself for that. You know, you understand it takes conditioning. And mm-hmm. I think that's oftentimes the the challenge people face with, you know, poetry or let's say listening to, to music or a reading of any kind that because you're not immediately able to do it in a sustained way, you kind of beat yourself up over it and you don't want to do it again. Mm-hmm. When in fact, it's quite normal that you can't do it that way. Like you actually should have to train your attention over time in order to do this. And so I think I find your argument that poetry can really help with this persuasive because like everybody else, I feel this, this need to be able to pay attention more. If I feel the, the distraction all around me, I suspect that, you know, for every one person who claims that they are a great multitasker, <laughs> you know, there's a hundred people who are honest and just say, no, I, I used to be sharper than I am. Yeah. And um, setting aside the time to train the attention, just like you would set aside time to you know, lift weights or run or you know, whatever it is where you're trying to condition yourself to do some good thing makes a lot of sense. Now, what I want to do, though, is, is kind of bridge from poetry in general to considering uh, scripture and the poetry of scripture in particular because I think the, the argument you're making is very applicable when it comes to reading the Bible. You know, a lot of people wish they read the Bible more. And the reality is we're all pulled in so many different directions. We're so distracted that the, the thought of being able to read for, you know, 15 minutes a day feels like an unobtainable goal for a lot of people. And then when they do spend that time reading, when they're done, they're not even sure what it is they just read. Comprehension just feels so uh, elusive. So 
the question is, how do you encourage people to develop a, a habit of reading that's not, you know, based on frustration and, yeah. and guilt, but actually increasing layers of understanding and benefit and, and enjoyment. And so, um, obviously, I guess in, in scripture, we've got the Psalms, but how do you think this might relate to the, just the question of, of how we read the Bible? Yeah, it's, it's tough because like you said at the start, I'm not trying to justify poetry here by its outcomes for us. Just like, I don't think we're trying to do that with, with the Bible. And there's a sense in which I think all art justifies itself because, you know, I, we don't want to go too deep into this, but like, if it's beautiful, it's, it's a good thing. Right. And you know, we've talked about that. And so a, a good poem is great, whether or not you have the attention to read it and to appreciate it. And, and by the same token, reading scripture is great, even if you don't understand half what right. you read. I yeah. mean, it's definitely uh, similar in that way. But, but uh, can these habits help us get more out of the mm. experience? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I certainly hope so. And like you said, we're talking about training here, which means there's some exercise involved. So, you know, the church has long talked about spiritual disciplines and reading scripture is, has been one of those forever. And just like prayer, reading is a kind of effort. It's an exercise which takes slow progress. So I don't exactly have tips, but I, I think, I think that you know, I mean, a psalm, for example, like a poem, is not very long. Most of them aren't very long. My wife and I read a psalm before bed every night, and it takes 45 seconds, you know. So there's like the brevity of poetry. It's it's the brevity of the psalm. So that's one example where I think that's why Christians have long turned to those. Because like poetry, well, they, they are poetry, but they can be digested and memorized even. They lend themselves to that. So I'm trying to think about the shape though, because I, in, mm. in that essay, I talked a little bit about how line breaks sometimes cause us to ask questions about the poem and help us to appreciate it more. But I'm, I'm trying to think of how that would apply to scripture. Do you have any thoughts? Well, I think it's, it's tricky there because the line breaks in poetry are deliberate uh -huh. and the line breaks in uh, scripture are not necessarily deliberate. It, it depends on the typographer. So the, translators will have rendered the poetry a certain way, but the typographers may or may not respect that in what they do. In a lot of Bibles, especially if you've got, you know, a double column layout, you, you introduce a lot of what I call unintentional line breaks that can lead you to go astray a little bit. If you're looking for a meaning, like why is this word on a line by itself? What does that mean? The reality is it might just mean the software did that and nobody you know, corrected it. So, so you've got to be a little bit careful with that. There is, is that difference, but, but of course Hebrew poetry isn't written the way English poetry is. If you understand a little bit about the mechanism of Hebrew poetry, you can overcome those things and you see their equivalent. So the equivalent, let's say, of, of that uh, deliberate line break in English poetry today might be something like the repetition of an idea, same idea in different words that you often have in Hebrew poetry. 
if you ever wondered why you're reading a psalm and it says one thing and then the next line says the exact same thing, but, but just slightly differently, or it says kind of the same thing, but expands the idea a little bit, or it says apparently the opposite of what it just said in some sort of paradoxical relationship. Well, those are all ways that poetry is done in Hebrew. And so once you have a little bit of an understanding of that, it makes a difference as you're reading through the poetry. So I think there's there's that kind of a connection. Like it, once you get that that the line breaks may not be deliberate, depending on your Bible um, edition, but the repetitions are very right. deliberate, then that can help you. And then it also helps when you recognize that the Psalms are not the only poetry in the Bible, that there's a lot of poetry. Uh, modern translations make this easy for us because they set it to look like our poetry. So then you're flipping through your Bible and you'll suddenly see, oh, look, here's a lot of poetry. And you realize, oh, this is in the book of Isaiah, not the Psalms. So in the prophets, you find a lot of verse. And I think that verse can be read in the same way that the Psalms can. Even in the New Testament, you'll occasionally get verse, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I'm always drawn to those instances where I see some verse in there. I flip through the book of Revelation. Anytime there's a song, I pay yeah. close attention to, right. to those. And they have that same uh, compression mm -hmm. and beauty of expression that I associate with poetry. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for someone who is, you know, maybe just beginning or, or just trying to get deeper into reading the Bible, the traditional advice is always, you know, get a reading plan, be disciplined, do it every day. Um, and that's all great, but I think it's also possible to go down that path and then have a lot of sort of like I'm reading out of compulsion, I'm reading out of a sense of duty. And uh, I would rather people read out of a sense of joy and discovery. And a way of doing that, I think, is by reading the poetry as poetry, not beating yourself up when you don't understand everything, but giving yourself time to acclimate because you're training yourself to spend more time in scripture and you'll begin to understand more as you do that. That's all the time we have for now. Be sure to check the show notes for a link to Cameron's essay, Training Our Attention, Why We All Need Poetry Now. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org. 